Go ahead and take a deep breath. We have some more praying to do. Today, we call to attention that January 22nd is the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision to legalize abortion in America. We believe that God has called and committed us to valuing and working to save human life. All human life. We believe that all human beings at any and every stage of life, in any and every state of consciousness and self-awareness, any and every race, color, ethnicity, level of intelligence, religion, language, gender, character, behavior, physical ability, disability, potential, class, and social status are to be perceived as persons made in God's image of equal and immeasurable worth and of inviolable dignity and therefore must be treated in a manner commensurate with this moral status. Womb life is human life. And human life bears the image of God. While we may agree that we have the right to control our own bodies, implicit in this right is the responsibility to control our bodies in such a way as to avoid dealing irresponsibly or violently with other lives. So even if the womb-bound human being is unwanted, hated, we must, as Jesus said, love our enemies. The only open door is the tragic door when the life of the mother is in jeopardy. And then the decision is the mother's or the family's before God. It is estimated that every day in America, 4,000 human lives are taken through abortion. Over 1 million lives a year. Over the last three decades alone, we are witness and party to the greatest holocaust in human history. Our posture of resistance and repentance takes two forms. First, we lament. Lament is the angry, grieving demand that God take notice and engage this tragedy. It is good for our lament to be public. Though we resist resistance, that makes this a mere political issue or a voice of hatred or condemnation. 
We lament, and secondly, we live out the gospel. We support pregnancy centers and abstinence education that come alongside young women and young men. And we help women and men who have had abortion in their journey walk in forgiveness and freedom. So, let us pray. I would invite you as I pray for two or three minutes here to take a posture that would express your heart. If you want to kneel, if you want to lie face down in an aisle, if you want to stand, walk around, feel free. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, the only begotten Son of the Father, source of life and of salvation, we pray to You today. We lament the loss of life through the act of abortion. We acknowledge that each life is a miracle, a gift that You have given us. Each life is Your wonderful creation. We are sorry for this loss for You. We believe You will care for every life that has been killed. But we are sorry. We pray for those for whom abortion is a part of their story. We pray for Your grace to be experienced Many suffer from continuing guilt and replaying the decision to have an abortion. For these people, we ask for Your help and healing. The cross, clearly seen. We lift up the women and men who this day are feeling desperate as if they need to choose the lesser of two evils when it comes to the situation of an unplanned pregnancy. We pray that they can see Your great mercy and Your powerful uh, perspective that they can choose life and that You will walk with them and others will walk with them. Lord, may they be willing to make the sacrifice to choose life. And we pray for the friends, families, mothers and fathers, counselors, physicians, nurses, and pastors who are walking alongside those making this decision. We pray for Your wisdom to seep through their words. And we pray that You would continue to hold up these helpers as resources of mercy and perspective. May they, with their words and Your work, turn hurting souls to You and Your unfailing love. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. We're in a preaching series in January called The Art of Life. And what we're trying to do is embed some things in this first month of the year that will help 2016 be a year of beauty and and depth and uh, resilience. And so we're trying to pick some key topics that if we can get just some insight into them, we believe they'll pay dividends throughout the year. So Nick started the year off with uh, work and faith and how we should view our work, how God views our work, and God's view of work can be life-giving to our work. And then last week he talked about work and rest, and and I would agree with him that arguably the most neglected commandment, at least in our culture, is the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so, uh, you know, work and rest are uh, uh, two vital components to a vital, a life of vitality. Today, I'd like to add uh, a third topic to what can make 2016 a year of resilience as we have the art of life, and that's friendship. I would like to talk about friendship. Now, as we begin, I don't think I need to cite a lot of sources or uh, refer to a lot of studies to tell us how uh, important friendship is in our life. To quote an old Rich Mullins song, uh, I know this to be true, in your life there's bound to come some trouble. There's bound to come some trouble. The truth is that when trouble comes into your life, you will sink lower if you do not have friends. Okay, one source, one source. Uh, It's a big source, a God. He says it this way. Ecclesiastes 4, here's how important friendship is. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone, and he had neither son nor brother. Brothers in Hebrew, the word friend. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So here's a guy who's climbed the ladder, everything you'd want in life, but it seemed that in order to get there, he'd left friendship out of his component. Neglected friendship. So here's the result. For whom am I toiling? He asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. There are two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. What's interesting is that the First Testament is full of this kind of teaching on friends. All through Ecclesiastes, if you go to the, the wisdom book of Proverbs, friends is one of the top five subjects talked about again and again as to what it uh, requires to have a life that's wise, a life that viewed from heaven is going to have richness and meaning in this life. Friends are important. We come to the New Testament And interestingly, there's not as much direct, explicit teaching on friendship. But when you come to the New Testament, what you see implicitly is that the whole thing, thing, the whole movement, launch of Christianity rests on vital friendships. I'd like to 
prove that to you this morning from a text in Acts 20 and 21. In a moment when we read it, you're going to think, wow, that's just basically Paul's itinerary. Too bad Southwest Airlines wasn't in business yet. I mean, all he's going is from place to place. But I want to push you a little deeper. Think on this text. And what you will see under it is that it's friendship holding everything together. Friendship was vitality to the early church. And therefore, friendship is vitality to the church today. So let's talk about friendship. Three things. One, we'll talk first about the importance of friendship. Friendship really matters. Two, because friendship matters so much, it would be important as to how we make friends. So I want to talk first about how we discover friends. By the way, there's this great saying, I'm stealing it from Tim Keller, but I need to, to quote him. He says, friendships are discovered, not just made, and friendships are made, not just discovered. So we're going to talk about the importance of friendship. We're going to talk about how to discover friendships. And then we're going to talk about how to make friendships. You ready? Strap in. Here we go. Travel log. Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 36. As I read it, I want you to, you know, listen to it, but I also want you to think friendship, friendship, friend. Where's friendship in this? Okay. Subversive. All right. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them. Uh, I'm sorry. I hate when people interrupt me, but I'm interrupting. I need to give some context. They're on a beach. Uh, They're outside the city of Miletus. Paul has called for the elders of a church he started from Ephesus. This is in modern-day Turkey. They've come down, these elders, good friends of Paul, and he's essentially saying goodbye to them because the Spirit, he has said earlier, is calling him to go to Jerusalem. So Paul is leaving for Jerusalem. He's saying goodbye to these dear friends, the elders from the church in Ephesus. They're on a beach in Miletus. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down and with all of he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven deacons. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I have 
no idea what that last verse means unless that's the first uh, reference to uh, singles.com or match.com. I'm not sure. Some background. Earlier in chapter 20, verse 22, Paul shares that the Spirit in his gut had broken in and said that you need to go to Jerusalem. Now you need to understand that Jerusalem's where you know Pentecost started and the Holy Spirit came and everything launched from Jerusalem. It's been many years now and Paul has traveled the world. He's had three missionary journeys such that in a, one place Paul could say, as far as I know, the gospel has been spread to the known world. That's an amazing statement. But uh, now, in ver- chapter 20, for whatever reason, Paul senses the Spirit saying, you need to go back now to where it started. You need to go back to Jerusalem. Now going back to Jerusalem, Paul knows is very risky. And in fact, several days later, when he gets there, he gets to the temple in Jerusalem and he is arrested. And for the rest of the book of Acts, Paul is either in prison or in peril or under house arrest. His life dramatically changes from this point on. He has no personal freedom. He uh, is subject to beatings and persecution and shipwreck and peril. That's the rest of the story for Paul in the book of Acts. But the other interesting thing collaterally with this change in his life is that never before has Paul had to rely on friends as he does now. Paul leans on his friends. And what's interesting, you may have picked this up. I tried to emphasize it a little bit. Beginning in Acts 21, it's no longer Luke who wrote the, bir- the book of Acts, the birth of the church. Up until chap- through chapter 20, Luke, a Gentile medical doctor, has been sharing the story of Paul, a Jewish lawyer, both committed followers of Jesus Christ, but it's always been in the third person. Paul did this. He did that. He did this. He did that. Did you see in chapter 21? We tore ourselves away from them now. What's happened? Luke has decided to go to Jerusalem with Paul. Friendship. It's a major change in the language of the book of Acts. And what you see is that Paul launching the Christian movement heavily relying on his friends. Why? Well, I want to step back a little bit, have us take a bigger picture here, look at what friendship is all about. The theology of friendship, if you will. This is going to give you something to think about. You may or may not agree with me on this, but I think it's really interesting. Here it is. If you go back to the very beginning of humankind in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you remember that in Genesis 3 is the fall of the human race. It's when Adam and Eve looked at God and said, you want us to do that? No, we're going this way. Thank you very much. We're over here. And everything falls. It's broken. Human relationships broken and they become hard. That's Genesis 3. What's interesting, you go back to Genesis 1. God makes everything. And after he makes everything, he says, it's good, right? Seven, maybe eight times, because he says humans twice. It's good, it's good, it's good. And then he comes to you and I, you're good, good, you're good, good. Everything's good. Then you go into Genesis 2. This is interesting. Everything's good, 
except in Genesis 2, there's a not good. What's not good in Genesis 2? Adam's alone. And God says it's not good for a man to be alone. Now, think of the implications. God is saying there that even though Adam had a 24-7 quiet time with the God of the universe who made him and loved him, it was not enough. God made us to need more than God. Think about the implication. Adam was unable to enjoy paradise by himself. This means that God built us for friendship. This means that out of all the aches we have because of the fall, all the aches, the one ache for friendship is not the result of the fall. So when we ache for friends and wrestle with friendships, we ache not because we're imperfect, but because we are perfect. Made in God's image means that we lean for friends. Is it making sense? Think on this. We are built for friendship. Before the fall, we ache for friends. Why? Well, because in Genesis 1, let us make male and female in our image. God says, I make them in my image. Who's God? God is Trinity. God is three persons in one essence. God is community. God, think about it. God is a friendship. Before anything existed, there was friendship. So when God makes us in His image, He makes us for friendship. We are built for friendship. Let me just pause here and give us a quick warning and a quick comfort. Can I do that? Quick warning, quick comfort. Here's the warning. We live in Littleton. Golden, Green Mountain. We live in a place where success matters. We live in a place where you need your 2.5 houses, your 2.5 cars, and your 2.5 kids. And in order to get all those things and live in Littleton, you work hard. You work your tail off. You, you are going at it hard to get the things we need to live here. Here's the warning. If you go at those things so hard that you neglect the essential component of friendship, you will be working against the way that you're made. You'll end up like the guy in Ecclesiastes who gets everything he ever wanted in life and has no one to share with. It's a warning. Do not neglect friendships to pursue status, achievement, or wealth. Or, 
If God made the human octane to run on friendship, to neglect it, you will seize the engine at some point. Okay? Warning. Comfort. Some of us are sitting here this morning in these seats, and these are painful seats because as soon as I mention the word friendship, your thoughts went to the ache that you have for friends. You don't have enough friends, or maybe some of the friendships you have are in peril or change or they're hurting or you're upside down with someone. Here's what I want you to hear in terms of comfort. If you are here this morning and you're aching about your friendships, you're aching not because you are dysfunctional or weak, but because you are made in the image of God and friendship matters. You are right where you need to be as much as it hurts. Wrestling with, why don't I have more friends? Why am I lonely? Why is this friendship hurting so much? If that's you, that's, I'm sorry, good. Good. You still have vitality. If it hurts, there's hope. Okay, Larry, blah, 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 blah. How do I make friends? I'm lonely. Two things. Friends are discovered, not just made. Friends are made, not just discovered. All right, discovered. What do I mean? Let's go back to the text. Verses uh, 3 through 5. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them for seven days. Though the Spirit urged, though, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And when it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. What an amazing scene. But here's what's interesting that we know of. Paul had never before been to Tyre. He, he didn't start the church in Tyre. It's never mentioned in Acts. There's no, nothing in church history that would lead us believe that Paul had ever met these believers before. He had just spent a week with them and made, can I say, discovered new friends. What's really cool, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, but they got up in Paul's grill, didn't they? <laughs> Paul, I don't think you should go to Jerusalem. More on that in a minute. I just think that's cool. Christians disagreeing but end up kneeling on the beach together. Hmm. All right. We'll get there. First, I want to say this. In this room, you have people you have never met before, but there's a potential you could spend a week with them and they could become some of your best friends. Why could that happen? It happens because every Christian has this amazing experience of receiving Jesus Christ. We sung it this morning, right? Jesus Christ as their Lord, and when we receive Jesus, we get a new Father, and we become children of God. What does that mean? That means our identity changes. When God looks at Larry Renault, he sees child, he sees son. When God looks at you, he sees child, he sees daughter, son. Our identity changes when we have this radical faith that connects us to the Father through Christ. We become a different person and we have brothers and sisters, friends. The bonds become thick because we have a new Father. Not only a new Father, the bonds become thick because we have a new agenda. So whoever you are, if you love Jesus, whoever I am, if I love Jesus, guess what? 
We have a new agenda. What's the new agenda? Whatever Jesus wants. Right? That's our agenda. Your agenda, my agenda, is whatever Jesus wants. So we stand shoulder to shoulder with a new Father and a new mission, the bond of Christ, we move out in mission. And when we move out in mission shoulder to shoulder, that is a potentially deep friendship. Just think about this for just a minute. Friendships tend to be shallow when they're not shoulder to shoulder, but they're face to face. They tend to be more shallow because all the friendship is about face to face is this. Well, how come you're not meeting my needs? Well, how come you're not meeting my needs? What's wrong with our friendship? What's wrong with our... The healthier friendships are not face-to-face where we just count on one or two people to meet every human need we have. The better friendships are shoulder-to-shoulder when we're in relationship with the one who does meet every human need we have and gives us a purpose and launch for life. And then shoulder-to-shoulder, man, those bonds can get close. Why? Because they're not so petty. Not so shallow. They're rich and deep because we have a father and a mission. Those tend to be the deepest friendships. Let me, let me, let me give you a quote and then a, an illustration. Shoulder-to-shoulder, mission-driven friendships. Lewis goes after this big time in his book, Four Loves, right? This is a great quote. This is why, that is why those pathetic people <laughs> who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend. No friendship can arise. Though affection, of course, may. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something, even if it were only enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers right these friendships where it's just so focused on you meet my needs I'll try to meet your needs those friendships are hard but when we turn shoulder to shoulder with father and mission in front of us boy there's a huge potential for those friendships healthier to go deeper So I would compare this trauma of meeting Jesus. He radically changes our identity and gives us mission to something that happens, I think, to soldiers who are in war. The only similar experience I could think of was the foxhole experience, right? Foxhole friends. What happens to soldiers in the foxhole? Well, they're after a big mission, win the war, go out for the cause. They have a huge mission. As they go on mission... They have to do it together. And what happens when they're together in the foxhole? Well, this is a great quote from uh, Stephen Ambrose in his book, Citizen Soldiers. He interviewed thousands and thousands of World War II GIs. Foxhole buddies develop a closeness unknown to all others. They were closer than friends, closer than brothers. Their relationship was different from that of lovers. Their trust in and knowledge of each other was total. 
They got to know each other's life stories and what they did before they came into the army and what their parents and brothers and sisters were like, their teachers, what they liked to eat and drink, what their capabilities were. Sometimes they hated one another. More often, they loved one another in a way known only to combat veterans. Without thinking about it, they would share their last bite or last drink of water or blanket and they would die for one another. They also complained constantly about the other guy's habits, physical and mental, his farts, his cough, the songs he hummed, his size, his intelligence or lack thereof, his politics, his nationality, his Confederate or Yankee sympathies, his taste in books or comics. The foxhole covered it all. Why? Because they were shoulder to shoulder on mission. That's the experience of being in the body of Christ, shoulder to shoulder on mission. So, let me get to the point. Here's the point. You're here, you're lonely, you want to discover more friends? Go out on the beach and kneel down with believers. Get in groups with other believers. Take a risk and get into groups with other believers on mission and see what happens. It's the best advice I could give you for discovering more friends. When you came in this morning, did you get this? Go ahead and take it out if you got this whole classes at spring classes. Really great stuff on here. Waterstone offers amazing content. Look at them. You can learn starting point if you're a seeker and want to understand more about what uh, Christianity is all about. Living in truth, marriage class. Talk about a classship on friendship. How about love and logic, parenting, financial peace, university. One of the best classes we offer here about using our money to worship God and to manage it better. Loving the rebel. You know, all of these are kind of content-driven, and what makes friends is when other friends who are suffering the same thing come together. I tell you, nothing causes more suffering in life than being parents. <laughs> this is an amazing class. Not only because the content is great, Lori's a parent educator, but what you'll find here is friends who are experienced the same kind of hurt that you are. The abundant life, work matters, and then we have divorce care. You know, we started offering divorce care a year and a half ago thinking we'd offer it maybe once a year. There's been so much demand from the church and community since we started it a year and a half ago, we have not stopped offering it for one week. Grief, if you've had a recent loss of a loved one. Grief share. This is amazing content, but here's the point. We offer this for you to help. The main help will be the friends that you make when you take the class. Here's the friends. They're waiting for you. Discover friendships. They are waiting for you. All right. Friends are discovered, not just made. But friends are made, not just discovered. How many of you would agree with this statement? Friendship is work. Yeah? Friendship is hard. I mean, it hurts. We could talk a while. 
on that, I just want to talk about two important components of making friends. First component, truth. Go back to the text. Look again at verse 4, 21-4. We sought out the disciples there and they stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go into Jerusalem. So again, you have this business here of Paul sensing the Holy Spirit, wanting him to go to Jerusalem, and then you have this local church sensing, Paul, you should not go to Jerusalem. I just find that interesting, right? Disagreeing. How do we know God's will? Well, whatever it was, they end up on the beach kneeling in prayer together, and Paul goes on to Jerusalem. I guess you do submit to an apostle in the end. (laughs) But here's my point. Truth in friendships. If your way of understanding what the will of God is for your life, no matter how mechanical or mystical you make it, if your way for knowing God's will does not include the process of friendship, you do not understand the Spirit's power or process. I think I should say that again. It's important. If your way of understanding what God's will is for your life does not include the process of friendship, you do not understand the Spirit's power or process through friendship. In other words, whenever you make any kind of decision in life, you need a wisdom committee. You need the council of saints. You need to run it by other believers. Well, let's put it, let me put the, this principle in Scripture. It's in Hebrews chapter 3. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Look, that word encourage, do you see it? It's the word preach. So, do you have other believers in your life who you've given license to? To preach. Do you have someone in your life that you go to on a regular basis and say, What's wrong with me? Do you have truth coming into your life through rich, deep friendship that is willing because you have a love relationship to give you a hit or two? to help you grow spiritually. All right, that's the truth component. You also need a transparency component. Transparency. Friendship should be transparent, which means you should be willing to bear another's burden and you should also be willing to share your burden with others. So let's talk about bearing burdens. Two quick things. I think in order to be a friend, so what you should be doing is evaluating yourself here. What kind of friend are you? Bearing burdens, I think, has at least two big things involved with it. First, you need to be a person who who shows up, who's constant, who's faithful. So when one of your friends or even an acquaintance has a loss in their life or you know they're struggling, do you show up? You know, I tell leaders at Waterstone, I tell seminary students that I mentor, 
Here's the big secret I've learned after 30 years of ministry. Do you want to know what it is? Do you want to know what it is, Waterstone? This is good. Half of ministry is just showing up. Showing up. So when you hear of a friend and you think to yourself, should I write a card? Should I call them? Should I knock at their door and have a two-minute conversation? Answer, yes! Yes! You realize, right, that in showing up, you engage the divine mathematics. Here's the divine mathematics. One plus one equals three. The Holy Spirit working between the two believers who are loving each other. One plus one equals three. What most people need in a crisis is not your excellent rhetoric and words that will solve every problem they have. By the way, right, you know, to quote Eugene Peterson, suffering attracts fixers the way roadkill attracts vultures. Think on that. They don't need your wisdom. They don't need your... The greatest problem that we face in the world is not that people suffer, it's that they suffer alone. Alone. And it's our goal to change that. So... Bearing one another's burdens involves showing up. And to put it bluntly, I'll probably offend you with the bluntness of the language, but you might remember it. Show up and shut up. Did I say that suffering attracts fixers the way road truly? Okay. Listening puts a Christian at their most winsome. Listening. Asking questions. Remember Job's friends. They showed up and sat with him for a week and didn't say a word. And then they opened their mouths and ruined everything. <laughs> Remember Job's friends. For two, you know what it does, right? When you go in there and you're going to fix everything and you start blabbing. And I hear it all. Christians do this a lot. So stop it. But someone's suffering and they'll be sharing their story and then you'll say, because you want to help them, the motives are good. But you'll say, yeah, it reminds me of when my so-and-so died. And here's what I did. Two things have just happened there. And they're not good. First thing that's happened is that your advice is putting them under the law. You know, and you come in with your cliches and your scriptures or this book to read, and you just press them down with one more thing, and they're in grief. Don't do it. The other thing, when you start coming in with all your experience, you, need, you forget that you're a couple years down the road and you're healing. You forget what you've done is you've taken the spotlight off the sufferer where it needs to be, and you've put it on yourself. That's just not helpful. Show up and 
Yes, the Spirit will let you know when it's time that maybe you should say something or share something. Yes, be listening, be open to that, but let your instinct first be quiet. Listen. Try to understand how they are feeling. Even though you went through something similar, it is not what they're in now. Mm. All right, one more thing. You bear burdens, but you also share burdens. James chapter 5 says we need to... This is maybe a neglected verse as well. We need to confess our sins one to another and pray for one another so that we might be healed. In order to bear the burden, we first must be willing to share the burden. C.S. Lewis, again in his book, Four Loves, he, he says that the essential component of friendship is simply a question. Are you ready? You too? You struggle with that too? That's part of your journey too? You too? That's my struggle too. Let's bring this all together and then we need to come to the table because Jesus, our friend, is waiting for us. But I want to close this part before we go to communion with a story. It's a story that if you've been around here for any length of time, you've heard. I try to share it every three years. I've been preaching for 30 years and this is still my top five stories of all time. And do you know why? This is the kind of church I desperately pray Waterstone is. This is what I want us to be. Here's the story. It's told by a preacher, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. His name was Bruce Tillman. He pastored a church in Pittsburgh for many years. He died. He's in heaven now. Glad that we're still sharing his story. He wrote, As I stand before you today, you think of me quite properly as a fat man. But believe me, I'm not nearly as fat as I used to be. I am getting less fat every day. I suppose across the course of my life that I've lost a thousand pounds. Lose ten pounds, gain it back. Lose fifteen, that's a total of twenty-five, gain it back. Lose ten more, that's thirty-five, gain it back. I've never been able to take off more than fifteen pounds, never been able to keep it off for more than a month at most. But in the last year and a half, I've lost 111 pounds. I still have another 160 to go. But I'm working on it. Not alone. For the first time, not alone. And that is what has made the difference. I was on a train traveling from L.A. to Chicago. I had taken a drawing room because I wanted to do some serious study. As you know, in those drawing rooms, they have a little bathroom attached. I went into that bathroom... And I was so wide, I could not sit down on the commode. At first, I laughed like some of you laughed. It is rather ridiculous. Then, I became annoyed because of what you have to pay for a drawing room. You'd think they'd have a commode you could sit down upon. Then, I became convicted. I had no idea how much I weighed. It was more convenient not to know. 
When I got back to Glendale, I tried to think of where I could be weighed. My doctor had one of those scales with a little weight that slides back and forth. I knew I couldn't be weighed on that because it only went up to 300 pounds. And I was far, far beyond that. I finally reasoned that I could be weighed at the post office. We have a branch office that is open 24 hours around the clock, and they have one of these big scales there that is built into the floor. And you can push the cart right up onto it, and you know what the cart weighs, so you subtract from the total weight, the weight of the cart, and you'll know how much you weigh. So under the cover of darkness, about 20 minutes after 11 on a Tuesday night, I went to the post office. I asked the man there if he had a scale on which I could weigh myself. He said, yes. He took me to a room and said, now I can either weigh you or I can explain to you how to operate the scale and I'll leave. Now on encountering that sensitivity in the man, I felt safe. I said to him, would you please operate the scale? It wasn't one of those that tells how much you weigh. It was one of those where the dial moves and you know, and we watched. And when it got to the end of its swing, I was weeping. He reached over and put his arm around my shoulder. And I said to him, are you a Christian? He said, yes. And he prayed for me. I went home and called my doctor that night who is a member of my church. And I said to him, Kyle, I want to go on a diet. He'd been talking to me about this for years, saying cute things like, your weight is just fine, but you should be seven feet, nine inches tall. Things like that. (laughs) I said, I want to go on a diet. Can I have an appointment for tomorrow morning? He said, where are you? I said, in my apartment. He said, I'll be right there. And ten minutes to midnight, he was there. I shared it with my congregation and enlisted 173 people in a prayer covenant. I have to ride five miles every day on a bicycle. I have one of those exercycles without wheels. It doesn't have wheels, but it does have a flag and a mudguard and two foxtails and a rearview mirror through which I can watch my own backside disappear. I have cards and letters and games and maps and everything you can imagine was sent to me by my friends to encourage me in what I was doing. And out of the sharing comes the bearing. And we say, where does that power come from? How can we be a friend like that? How can we be a community like that? The answer to that question is Jesus. John chapter 15, we read, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. Because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you, Waterstone, friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you 
so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love one another. So it comes to this. It comes to this. A true friend is one who lets you in and won't let you down. And we have that friend in Jesus Christ. He has let you in. He said that I came from heaven and I'll give my life to forgive your sins and to give you eternal life so that you can have my Father as your Father. He's let us in. And He's also given us His life so that no matter how low we get, Jesus is there. He spread His arms for you. His arms are scarred. He's reached for you from the cross. Your sins are forgiven. He knows our depths. He's been there. He has let us in. He won't let us down. He will not leave us or forsake us. Do you know what that means? That means because of our friendship with Jesus, we have emotional capital so that we can bear one another's burdens and share our own. So this morning, as we come to the table, it's a table of friendship. Some of you need to sit for a moment and just evaluate your friendships. Why don't I have any? Do I need to take a risk and discover some new friends? Think on that. Some of us need to think, do I know Jesus? Do I have the greatest friend a person could ever have? Some of us need to think about a friendship that's broken and really seriously examine why and what does God want me to do about that. So as we come, we come to meet with Jesus, our friend. On the night He was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it. And He said, this bread represents My body, broken for you as often as you eat it. Remember Me. And this cup represents My blood, the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins as often as you drink it, remember Me. When you're ready, come meet Jesus, your friend, at His table. Dip the bread into the cup. Walk away again knowing you're forgiven and equipped to be a friend.